Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. While serving the Minnesota Senate back in the late 1800s, Andrew B. Robbins would often pass through an area just north of Minneapolis near the lower Twin Lake, and he was impressed by the landscape. So much so that he purchased 90 acres and platted a tract called the Robbinsdale Park. The park was host to his Northern Car Company and his Hubbard Specialty Manufacturing Company, among others. After the Minneapolis Street Railway Company refused to extend a streetcar line to his development, he then organized the North Side Street Railway Company and built his own railroad line from the Minneapolis city limits. In 1893, after building a 16-room Queen Anne-style mansion, it had five fireplaces, electricity, indoor plumbing, and acres of lawn, walks, fountains, shrubs, and two tree-lined entrance roads. He incorporated 2.9 acres into a new village where he would continue to build and attract residents, business, and industry. That new village would be called Robbinsdale. Robbinsdale, Minnesota. After developing a series of successful arcade games back in the early 1980s, the company Nintendo released their first Nintendo Entertainment System. A home video system featuring a new platform game called Super Mario Brothers. Boxing legend Mike Tyson made his professional boxing debut at the young age of 18 years old against Puerto Rican Hector Mercedes at the Empire State Plaza Convention Center in New York. This would be the home of Mike's first three fights in his career. Coca-Cola announced they had changed their Coke recipe, which was called Merchandise 7X, and they were releasing what they said was now called New Coke. The response was overwhelmingly negative, and the original formula was back on the market in less than three months. I'm Don Keogh, president of the Coca-Cola company. When we brought you the new taste of Coke, we knew that millions would prefer it, and millions do, and we knew that it would beat the taste of our major competitor. And it does. What we didn't know was how many thousands of you would phone and write asking us to bring back the classic taste of original Coca-Cola. Well, we read and we listened, and you know the rest. They're both yours, the new taste of Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. Your right of choice is back. The year was 1985. So far, it had been a a pretty average winter in Robbinsdale, Minnesota that year. 
with February temperatures in the teens and about 8 inches of snow on the ground. Robbinsdale still covers that original 2.9 square miles and was home to over 14,000 people, many who were patiently waiting for spring in this often frigid Midwestern state. John Thomas Scanlon John grew up in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. He graduated from Robbinsdale High School back in 1968. In June of 1969, he enlisted in the Marine Corps and went to serve his country in Vietnam. Discharged in 1971, he then enrolled at St. Cloud State University while working for North Memorial Center's ambulance service. In 1974, John was hired as a new officer at the Robbinsdale Police Department. He was badge number 3810 and was just 24 years old. The city's smaller size and location within the metro area offered their officers a unique blend of call variety for the Robbinsdale Police Department. Ron Engblom was one of the detectives for Robbinsdale PD back then, and he was a close friend of John's. Robbinsdale is a suburb on the north side of Minneapolis and has a population of approximately 14,000 people in it. It's basically a bedroom community. We really don't have any industry to speak of. I don't, you know, we don't have any uh, industrial park or anything. And at that time was probably comprised of a lot of elderly or senior Citizen. The police chief in 1985 was John Spetch. Well, it's a small town in the middle of a big metropolitan area, essentially. It's a first-ring suburb of Minneapolis, right off the northeast side of Minneapolis, surrounded by other suburbs, Golden Valley to the south, Crystal to the west, Brooklyn Center to the north. Kind of a small town atmosphere with a very small downtown area still, uh, similar to what a small town would have in a rural area. Uh, so it's got a small town feel to it and they try to keep it that way. People who live there like it that way. They're pretty, pretty laid back people usually. Six years into his career, in the spring of 1977, John married Joan and they settled in New Hope, Minnesota. I met John in 75. I met him through a speeding ticket. Actually, he didn't give me the ticket. Well, me and one of the Robinsville policemen were, were friends, and I got a speeding ticket one night from, from a cop that they all called Ricky Radar. He called me and said, Joni, I heard you got a ticket. I want you to fight it in court. His friend was telling me to fight, to, to fight it. And I said, excuse me? He said, I want you to fight it in court. And I said, well, all right. So I went to court and won. And then Jay Samuelson stopped me Oh, after they got word at the, at the station that I had beat it, they were all very excited. And so he stopped me to tell me that he was proud of me for fighting it and winning. And John was with him, and he introduced me to John. That's how we met. And then I used to cut Jay Samuelson's hair. And so John called and wanted to know if I would cut his hair. And I said, well, sure. So, of course, I, I, I gave made him the last, my last appointment of the night because I was always booked pretty much. Pretty, I was always very busy, and so when he when I was through cutting his hair, he said, "Would you like to go out for a drink?" And so him and I went out and had a glass of wine, and we had a ni- nice evening. And then he said to me, "You know, can I call you again?" And I said, "Sure." And that's how I met my husband. Those who knew John described him as patient with the public. He was fun to work with. He had a, a great sense of humor, and he was pretty straightforward. He had a big smile, and he loved life. I call him a laid-back cop. 
And that's not a derogatory term by any means. You know, he had a lot of patience with people. He was uh, pretty fun to be around if you were a fellow officer. You could uh, make fun. He was was rather, uh, well, not ultra short, but shorter than most of the other officers. So they would play little jokes on him and he would take that very well, you know, and laugh along and stuff like that. Like they would put on a little stool outside his driver's door or something, you know, little things that police do sometimes to make life happy you know you need to relieve some of your stress occasionally john was a great guy uh outgoing very personable funny i was uh, was kind of joking around and kidding uh he also loved softball played on several different softball teams and i remember he used to get some of the nurses and the personnel from north royal hospital and we'd go out to lake independence and we'd uh, water ski and i'd go out and barefoot water ski for him and stuff we had a lot of fun uh, do, doing stuff he had a corvette that he enjoyed to drive, and then he had a El Camino, older one that he certainly uh, enjoyed. So he, he enjoyed cars, and he enjoyed to be outdoors and, and do stuff. We snowmobiled all the time in the wintertime. We had the speedboat, and, and the boys would all go to Lake Independence, everybody. And there was a oh, Dr. Chris, I think it was Dr. Christensen lived on Lake lived on Lake Independence, so they could they could ski off of his dock if they wanted to, or they could just go to the boat lodge and do it there. So they always went on a weekday when they all had off. And we could get, they could get, we could get, not me. They could get four skiers up at a time. So they, we would get four skiers, they would get four skiers up. Well, then one of them had a son who was seven. And of course, I was always like, oh, you guys, you know, when you start drinking that damn beer, I have to worry that somebody's going to get injured. Well, I went there one day and of course it was always, oh, here she comes, here she comes. And, and they had, they had that little boy on somebody's shoulders in the, on the lake. And I was like, are you guys, did you guys lose your mind? You know, I mean, I was like, what? They were like a bunch of little kids. It was like, what are you doing? And I mean, people, people would watch for them because I mean, they were derby where they try to knock the other one down. I mean, it was, yeah. And, and it got known as the Scanlon Water Show. John and Joan had also just recently adopted their son. Nicholas. We had tried getting pregnant many times, and I and I did get pregnant twice, and I miscarried both babies. And so we talked about it and decided maybe we would, you know, put in for adoption, and then, you know, I would continue with my infertility stuff, and we would do that. Well, then we put in for adoption, and, um, of course, had all our papers, you know, we had to go for classes, and we had, we had to get letters from people, and they had to come out and look at the house and do all that. And then... Um, when they finally said to us, all right, now we're going to start sending out your, your, your folder to, to mothers who are going to give up their children. And they said, so you should kind of act like you're pregnant because you're going to have a baby, you know, soon. So we said, well, and, that, and then they told me that if I was pregnant, when, when they called us, they wouldn't give me the baby because there are other people out there that, that, you know, didn't have any children who... So I said to John when they told us that, we're not even trying anymore because we need the sure thing here. And with our experience, I said, even if I got pregnant, I maybe would lose that baby and then we would have not, we would have not gotten the, our baby. So, so anyway, so yeah, so that's how we, that's what happened and why we ended up adopting. Richard Ligda was an office manager for a Robbinsdale insurance company. They were at 3735 Lakeland Avenue in Robbinsdale. 
He was working late on the firm's second floor office and leaving the office around 2 a.m. when he discovered signs of a burglary in an optometrist's office in that building. Ligda called police. John was working the 10 p.m. to 6 p.m. shift that night with fellow Robbinsdale police officer Lowell Hughes, and they were dispatched to the Mark II office. John was on patrol working dog watch, and uh, Lowell Hughes was also working that particular night, and it was a call of a check a building because there was a uh, person working in a building that heard some noise and felt there was another person in the building. So they responded. The two cars responded to the Mark II professional building located there across the road from Crystal Lake. The reporter, Richard Ligda, met them at the front entrance at around 2.30 a.m. The Mark II office complex was a building on stilts. It had the main entranceway located at the bottom of the building off from Lakeland Avenue North. Officers noted the main entrance to this building was always well lit. Ligda explained that it was the optometrist office on the second floor level that appeared to have been burglarized. John and Lowell searched the building and located the door that had been kicked into the business office. They continued to search and found evidence of a burglary, but found nothing else disturbed in the building. They determined that the burglar entered through an emergency exit door by breaking the glass and reaching inside to unlock the exit door. The officers then left the building to search the outside area. They found a set of footprints, and Hughes set out on foot to follow the footprints in the snow while John searched the area in his squad car. While the officers were unable to locate any suspect or suspects, there was apparently one hiding inside the building. After John and Lowell cleared the building and then were continuing to search the area, Legda returned into the office building and was headed to his office to use the phone to contact the landlord about the burglary when he saw a man inside the building coming up the stairs. The man reached into his coat and he produced a handgun and asked Ligda, are you the one who called the cops? Ligda said, no, I didn't. Ligda started walking away from the stairs, telling the man he was merely working late and he was on his way home, hoping the man would leave him alone. Ligda testified that the man motioned with the gun and said, you're the one that called, I know it, come on, you're going to be my hostage. Legda reported that they went downstairs and the man said, if you're the one that called the cops, I'm going to kill you. Once outside, the man told Legda they're waiting out here to blast away. Now, keep in mind, while the Robbinsdale Police Department could be busy in this smaller community, incidents like this just didn't happen there. The man asked Ligda if the car in the parking lot was his. He denied it. He said he walked to work. The man then instructed Ligda to walk down the driveway towards France Avenue. At this time, John had completed searching the area and he was returning to the building in his squad car. Dick Ligda, who was being kidnapped at the time and uh, being walked down the parking lot, the suspect, Ronald Schneider, was behind him with a gun. And uh, Schneider yelled that uh, the guy went that away, that away. John opened his driver's side window 
Ligda, seeing the squad nearing them, started walking towards it, raising his hands, thinking John would notice him. But before he drove up to Ligda, the gunman told Ligda to put his hands down. The man, holding Ligda hostage, approached the squad car and yelled at John, pointing his hand, saying, He went that away, he went that away, pointing north to Lakeland Avenue. Ligda tried to maneuver himself away from the gunman, placing himself between John and the man and tried to warn John, No, that's him, that's him. Ligda ran past the front of the squad towards the passenger side, thinking he would try and put the squad car between himself and the gunman. As Ligda ran past, he looked to his right through the windshield of the squad car, and he saw the gunman insert his hand with the gun through the open window of the squad and fired two shots. Ligda was approximately five to six feet in front of the front bumper of the squad when the shots were fired. He said he saw two bursts of light, and then he heard the two shots. Ligda felt the officer had likely been mortally wounded, and he needed to flee. He needed to run to save his life. Kidnap victim Dick Ligda took off running to save his life, and that's when uh, Ronald Schneider ran up to the car and fired two rounds into the car, on the first round striking John in the cheekbone and went through his nose, but the second round went into the between his vest panels and his armpit area and uh, struck him in the aorta. Ligda continued to run across Highway 81 towards Crystal Lake, across both lanes of traffic, the median lane, and across the open area on the other side of the highway. He went down the embankment, which led down to the lake, and he waited to see if the gunman was following him. John's partner, Lowell, had searched the area following the footprint tracks in the snow from the building. At one point, the tracks ended, and he started working back towards the office building. While on his way back, he reported seeing a figure running across the highway to the east. Thinking it could be their suspect, he yelled at the man, Stop, police! Stop, police! several times. The man continued running into the darkness towards the lake. Lowell reached the lakeshore, and he started scanning the area for the man. He also was calling John on the radio, but was getting no response. After he was unable to locate the runner, he returned to the building, and then he approached a squad car with lights on that was parked in front of the building next to the Citizen State Bank. Lowell approached the squad car, and he could see what appeared to be an officer in the front seat laying across the front seat with his head facing the passenger side of the squad, leaning across the console part of the front seat. It was John in his patrol car, shot twice, once in the face and once in his side. Lowell immediately got on the radio. He requested assistance from all area agencies, from Crystal, from Golden Valley, from Brooklyn Center, from Minneapolis Police Department. A Crystal squad was first on scene with Lowell and he assisted him in getting John out of the squad and helped render first aid. When John worked for North Memorial Ambulance as a paramedic, he made many friends there, and he never lost touch with his paramedic friends and would often drop in on them at the hospital's ambulance headquarters to visit. Almost every paramedic at North Ambulance knew him. Paramedic Jeff Krill was a friend of John's, and John had come to visit him earlier that evening in the hospital. Now, Jeff was responding to an officer being shot. When Jeff arrived on scene, Lowell and the other officers had already started resuscitation efforts, and he realized it was John. 
they found John with no pulse and he was gravely injured. Jeff and other paramedics took over. At that point in time, it was still what we would call a hot scene. They were unsure if the shooter was still in the area. In spite of the danger, and in spite of the fact that it was an unsecure scene, they jumped right in to do everything they could to try and save John. At 2.55 a.m., Lowell requested dispatch contact Chief John Spetch, while John was being rushed to the hospital. Um, I was obviously at home sleeping. This was a very early morning event, and uh, I got a call from dispatcher Lambert, who was the only the third person that was on duty at that time, and she said that Officer Scanlon had been shot, and then that the ambulance was on the way and, you know, basically to notify me and, of course, to have me come in as soon as I could get there, which was fairly quick. So when I got there, the, the Minneapolis Police Department, when you get something like this, of course, we only had one other officer on, so you have crime scenes to control. You know, it becomes pretty chaotic. You're, you're still doing a suspect search of the area, all kinds of things. Well, Minneapolis sent over a large quantity of officers. We have a considerable mutual aid with the surrounding communities. Um, and so officers came from other cities also, like Brooklyn Center, Crystal, Golden Valley, uh, to, to help set up perimeters and stuff like that. So when I went there, I went to where their command center was. It was being run. It was one of their supervisors. And he was doing a great job. And so there wasn't a lot for me to do other than check on what was being done. Checked back with the dispatch, and, and they checked with the hospital, and then I was informed that Officer Scanlon had passed away from the gunshot wounds. Normally, in incidents like this, you have a supervisor, another officer, or the chief notify the wife of an officer who's been hurt. John's wife, Joan, learned John had been hurt after her aunt heard it on the police scanner and called her mother. After I got the baby down, John was gone to work. I called my mom, which was, my mother was a, was a night owl, so I knew. And so I talked to my mom probably until about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I hung up from her. Well, my aunt had a police radio, and she heard John get shot. And she called my parents and said, John's been shot. And my, my, my mother was like, oh, Oh, you're kidding. And she said, no, I heard it on the police radio. So um, she, so my dad said, I'll call the police department and see what the deal is. So he called the police department and they said, um, yes, we don't know anything. We've got, we've got officers, you know, on their way. We don't know anything. I'll call you back when I know something. And so dad said, fine. It was only a few minutes later. They called, they, they called my folks and said, John is en route to North. He has been shot. So dad said, all right, we'll go and get Joan. So they knocked on my door. And I mean, I had probably just gotten into bed. It was it was three o'clock in the morning. And I got out of bed and went to the door and I was shocked that my parents were there. <laughs> and I opened the door and they came in and, and mom said to me, Joni, uh, there's been an accident at work and John's en, route to no John's en route to North. So we're gonna take you to the hospital. Well, of course, we had the baby. And I said, well, you know what? Dad can stay with the baby, and you and I will go. And Mom said, no, I think we need your dad. So I said, okay, fine. So I called the neighbor, and she said, I'll get clothes on, and I'll be over there in a minute. So she got clothes on, and she came and watched and was with Nicholas, and my mom and dad and I went to the hospital. Well, when we got to where 
it happened. There were so many squad cars. It was so it was so lit up. And I said to my mom, "What kind of an accident was this?" And she said, "Well, don't eliminate the fact that there could be a gun involved." <laughs> and so then I knew what I was walking into. Well, when I got to the hospital, now keep in mind, John had been a paramedic for North before this. He was a police officer, and so everybody knew him in the emergency room. And so when I got there, I started down the hallway and one of the nurses came out and said, Joan, I'm gonna put you in a family room and the doctor will be in to talk to you. So they put me in a family room and of course, you're not one to put me in a room and tell me somebody will be there. So I got came out of the room again after a little bit and started walking down the hall and the nurse came out again and put me in the room and said to me, Joan, your husband has passed away. I mean, I was like, what? And he said, your husband has passed away. So then I said, okay, I, I want to see him. And she said, just a minute. She said, I let the doctor come in and talk to you. So the doctor came in, and I didn't know him. And I knew most of the doctors in the emergency room, but I happened to get one that we did not know. So anyways, he came in and said to me, yes, John has passed away. And, you know, can I do anything for you? And I said, you know, no, there isn't anything. But I would like to see him. Well, they said, no, you can't see him. And I said, no, I'd like, I won't touch him or anything, but I want to see him. And they said to me, no, you cannot see him. So, of course, I said, all right, I said to my mom and dad, we need to go to, to, to John's, we need to go to John's sister's so that I can tell her and that she can go to John's mother. Because I said, I didn't want them to hear it, but from me. So we left with um, one of the, um, one of the sergeants was there and we left with him and the champ the chaplain and so um when we got to john's sister little did i know she would lose her mind and and i thought oh my god and finally i said to my to my mom and dad we're going back to my house and i look at the sergeant and the chaplain and i said you can get her under control and then you get her they're her parents because they need to know before anybody i said it's important to me that they know so then, so then we left and went back to our house. And then, of course, as my as relatives started finding out, you know, my aunt started calling. My mother came from a large family, so we heard my dad was an only child. So you know, they came to the house. Um, the priest, who I was very close with, he came to the house. But then it was just a matter of you know we sat around all day. The coroner did call me and ask me questions too. And then I said to the coroner, "Okay, how bad is this?" I mean, I know that certain bullets can cause certain holes, and I want to know how bad this is. And he said, Joan, he's going to be, he's viewable. He has, he has, he has holes, but he's viewable. And I said, okay, fine. So, um, so that's what went on that morning. The officers on scene, the paramedics, and the hospital staff did everything they could to save John. John was pronounced dead shortly after he arrived at North Memorial Hospital. And the gunman who murdered John had gotten away. Ligda had returned to the scene. He observed the officers who were doing CPR on John. He described the gunman as a white male, 40 to 45 years old, 5 foot 8, 150 pounds, 
Legda said he had short black hair, a dark, bushy mustache to the mouth corners. He was wearing dark pants, olive drab army fatigue type jacket, and an English type driving hat with a snapped brim. He said the suspect used a smaller caliber automatic blued handgun. This is the phone call that no cop ever wants to receive. It's the call that one of your own has been shot. It was our dispatcher that called me and said that somebody had been shot. And, uh, of course, I immediately asked what the condition was. And she didn't know at the time, and I immediately just responded to the police department. You know, it's a difficult thing to come in knowing that one of your fellow officers had been shot. But when I got to the department, I knew that it was a fatal situation and that I'll, I had to work. I had to just go to work and, and keep my mind uh, focused on doing one thing, and it, it worked because we had so much help. Officers and agencies from all over the metro came to help with the investigation. Captain Brent Running from the Hennepin County Sheriff's Department, who is a good friend of mine, fantastic police officer. I learned a lot from this guy. He came on with his crew of detectives, and there was probably six to eight of them that, that came out with him. And they're all very experienced in uh, homicide investigations and, and conducting big investigations. And, of course, we, you know, we had a lot of boots on the ground to start with. We had, I remember, a couple guys from Minneapolis Homicide came out. Uh, Rick Gouch from Crystal, the guys from New Hope. Uh, all the surrounding departments sent people sent people out. So we had, I'm, I'm sure we had upstairs in the neighborhood of 25, you know, people that were ready to work that started out and we, you know, hit the streets. Ligda was eventually taken back to the Robbinsdale Police Department where Detective Engblom would interview him and call in an artist to help with a composite sketch of the suspect. And I responded to the police department and uh, at that time met with um, Dick Ligda, a witness and the kidnapped victim. And um, I got a hold of Art Pappas, uh, who was a freelance artist. I'd worked with him before and uh, we did a composite drawing of the suspect right away as long as uh, Mr. Ligda had it fresh in his memory. Ligda went into seclusion after John's murder, staying away from both home and work while authorities worked to identify the shooter. Investigators hit the streets working to identify the shooter. The composite sketch soon became key in generating these leads. One lead being pursued was a Golden Valley police officer's belief that the description of the shooter matched a man who shot the instant cash machine at the Northwest Bank at 650 Douglas Drive in Golden Valley. They had recovered a bullet from that shooting. They brought over a photo of the person that had done the shooting there um, so we could match, you know, bullets and get together and start coordinating some stuff and get information from them also. We hit the streets, got out as much information. I released the drawing that Art Pappas did for us right away, and that was really the key. And then we generated some other information that um, Schneider had uh, shot up the ATM at the Wells Fargo in Golden Valley, and they had also actually um, burglarized the Mark II building uh, previously. We felt that he had done that. The suspect had been photographed by a bank camera as he shot the machine around 5 a.m. back on January 26th. The photos were very similar to the composite drawing, except the man in the cash machine photos was wearing glasses. The man in the composite drawing was not. These photos were shown to Ligda, and he said he believed the person in the photos was the same person who shot John. And we were sitting there talking about some of the stuff that was coming in, but one of them that was going through the uh, list of comments from people 
that were sending in tips brought up the name of Ronald Snyder. And the bell went off in my head finally that uh, I knew Ronald Schneider. And as soon as, as soon as that name came up, I looked at that picture and I said, we can quit looking for anybody except him because he's, he's the guy in that picture. Chief Spetch was familiar with the suspect because at one point he and the man in the picture were both part of the Robbinsdale JCs. Now they had a name, Ronald Vernon Schneider, 43 years old from Robbinsdale. The chief recalled that Schneider had come into the police department to talk to him back in January about a police matter. He said he was wearing a green army field jacket and a gray tweed type sports hat with a button down brim. The chief was also shown the ATM pictures and he identified the male in the pictures as Schneider. Others also started identifying the suspect as Schneider, including a friend of Detective Ingblom's and one of Schneider's high school classmates who said he saw the composite drawing on a television newscast and believed it was Schneider. Investigators got a judge to sign a no-knock search warrant for Schneider at his apartment Friday night on the 15th. His apartment was located in the 3800 block of West Broadway in Robbinsdale just one and a half blocks away from where Schneider had murdered John. It was also literally across the street from the funeral home where John's visitation was that night. So when we we found out where where he was staying, which was an apartment in Robbinsdale, basically a third floor apartment, this was the night of the wake. Uh, for John at at a funeral home in town. And lo and behold, when we identified the apartment was right before the wake was, or as it was starting. And I was still at the office because of this. It was starting to pick up steam. Found out that it was uh, an apartment that was overlooking the parking lot at the wake. Spetch told me he had to go because of that. And I said to him, promise me that you won't let the Robbinsville police go in there. I said, I don't want anybody else hurt. And I said, we don't know what this man is going to do. And I did say that to him. I don't, please, please, you know, we don't need another person hurt. So, you know, let Crystal, Crystal was involved too. The county was involved. I said, let one of, let that group go in and, and arrest this man. So anyway, so then, so then I was, they had taken me away from John's body and my cousins and I were sitting in a little room by ourselves letting the people go through because, uh, you know, the, the line was out the door. And so, uh, and of course, everybody wanted to talk to me, and it was, it was, you know, a lot. But anyways, so a judge came in to see me, and she said, Mrs. Scanlon, and I said, yes, and she said, I'm judge, and I forget what her name was. And she said, I want you to know I'm leaving your, your husband's wake. So she said, I'm on my way to Robbinsdale to, to, the, to, the, to the police station to sign the, the warrant for his arrest. At around 11 p.m., a phone call was made to Schneider's apartment from the chief's office by Detective Archie Sonestal. First off, we set up security uh, using emergency response teams to contain him if he was there and make sure that there was nothing that would, because his window was actually overlooking that parking lot. We didn't want to have any kind of a confrontation at that time. You know, so we were delaying the confrontation with him. If he was even there, we didn't even know whether he was there at that time. 
so I went in, I took, uh, ran down there basically, or ran down. I didn't tell Joan that he was, you know, right there or whatever, but I told her that we had identified, we had identified the person we felt had, had killed him and that I was in the middle of something right now and I, and I couldn't, you know, apologize for not being able to stay at the wake, basically. You know, paid my respects, you know, did a few things, but basically had to get right back to the job. So we went back and one of the investigators, uh, later in the evening when the wake was over called him by phone and we had the SWAT team and entry team ready to go uh, to get him well it didn't know what he answered and it went to a voicemail and his voicemail was really kind of bizarre so the investigator hung up didn't you know call back or say anything or whatever and so everything was kind of on standstill and then we decided well let's just try calling back we wanted to get a recording of that so put a recording up for it well he answered the phone and we had the officers essentially in the area outside, but not exactly ready for the entry, but close. So then uh, the investigator started talking to him and told him to lay on the living room floor and you know spread his arms out and stuff. And, and he kept talking to us on the phone. And then the uh, officers, that, you know, another very good job by the investigator that was talking with him. Uh, you know, told him to put his hands out, told him exactly what was going to happen. You know, that officers were going to come through the door with a dog and they wanted, they wanted him to just lay there very still and so on and so forth, which he did. They came in, we could actually hear him because he left the phone up by his ear, you know, come in and cuff him and uh, basically take him into custody and bring him right back to the Robbinsville Police Department where we could interview him properly. Archie was on the phone with him because we were communicating with Archie and that's when we gave the signal to go ahead and the entry team. I remember this distinctly. Hit the door, first time they hit the door, it didn't go. And I remember Brent running, the captain is really upset. So we're running down the hallway and and the entry team then finally gets the door and they get in and get him secured. Brent and I go in the apartment and then of course I told him he's under arrest, you know, for the homicide of Officer Scanlon. He was then taken to our department and booked. During the search of his apartment, they discovered a spent 32 caliber casing in a box that matched two casings found at the shooting scene. They had identical markings. Tests conducted also determined that the bullet recovered from John's body and the one found in his squad matched a bullet recovered from the ATM machine in the Golden Valley shooting. Clothing found in Schneider's apartment matched the description of the clothing worn by the shooter that took Ligda hostage, the shooter that killed John. They also discovered paperwork from the office of attorney Rolf Nelson in Schneider's apartment. Now, Nelson was the victim of the unsolved burglary in the Mark II building back in April of 1983. During that burglary, a gun was shot in the office and a bullet was recovered, a 32 caliber bullet one that would also later match the bullet recovered from John's body. They quickly put together a lineup for Ligda to view on Sunday. At the Hennepin County Jail, six white males were displayed in a lineup for Ligda to listen to and to look at. He identified the male with the number two around his neck as the one that shot John. Male number two was Ron Schneider. Schneider was charged with murder on that following Tuesday. Schneider's girlfriend would later testify that she spent around eight hours with him after the shooting. She said Schneider was puzzled that the sketch of him didn't depict any glasses. 
She said that she observed Schneider cut up and flush down the toilet two European-style caps like the one the suspect was wearing in the police drawing. She said he also shaved his mustache. She also testified that Schneider told her he watched flowers being delivered to the mortuary, which he could see out of his kitchen window. He indicated he thought police would be coming to get him right after the reveal. She said Schneider told her that everything happened so fast that the officer didn't even have his gun out of the holster. And after the shooting, he walked away from the scene up West Broadway. Schneider had been unemployed for years. He was a former member of the JCs and a helicopter mechanic for the Army Reserves. He also had a history of mental health issues. On Tuesday, the 26th, a grand jury indicted Schneider on nine counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping, assault, and burglary. During the trial, Schneider's attorney tried unsuccessfully to find him unfit mentally to stand trial. One of the things Joan remembers most about the trial was Schneider always trying to get her attention. He knew who I was, and he kept wanting to look at me. Um, he would come in and throw kisses and wave, and you know, and then he'd sit. I, I'm telling you, he, he was a nut. And then, and then, of course, the judge, Judge Lebedoff, who was the nicest man, but he had a son the age of Nicholas. And he'd say to him, would you please look at me? I'm the person you should be looking at. You know, don't look at Mrs. Scanlon. Just look at me. Yeah. And, and when he'd leave, when, when it was a, for the trial had, you know, stopped for the day, he, he would go out and, and, you know, wave and smile and, yeah, yeah. Thursday, November 14th, nine months after he murdered John, the jury deliberated and a verdict was ready. They came in to tell us that the, that the jury had reached a verdict. And, and of course, Mrs. Scanlon kind of started hyperventilating. <laughs> So I got up and I left. I left the, the room and with Judge Lebedoff watching me, and he recessed. And I was in the women's bathroom, and he knocked on the door and came into the women's bathroom and said, "All right, Joan, now here's something you need to know, and I want you to think about it." He said, "Before I read the before the verdict is read, I have to lock the door, so you can't get out." <laughs> And I just want you to know that, because if you don't think you can, you can handle this, then you need to, to stay out. And I said, no, no, I, I need to be there. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll do fine. And Ron was sitting next to me, and my mom was on the other side of me, of course. And, of course, we got our guilty verdict, which I was positive that we would. Um, so, and then, you know, it was, such, it was such a relief when the verdict came. That was, I remember that more than anything. It was just, it was like my whole body relaxed. Schneider was convicted of John's murder, and he was going to prison. Over 1,200 people attended and honored John at his funeral at 1 o'clock on February 16, 1985, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Robbinsdale. He was then buried in New Hope. The amount of police officers that were there... I mean, the cars were the cars were, were lined up triple on the street. The police cars. I can tell you that there were 361 uh, vehicles in the procession because a friend of my mother and dad left and went to the cemetery to count the cars. Yes, 361 vehicles were in that procession. 
We waited forever. We were at the cemetery and they were still at church. This was actually the second first responder line of duty death in this small community over the past year. They'd lost a firefighter in a fire almost a year before to the date. Losing an officer is challenging for any chief or sheriff who's responsible for their safety. It was especially a challenge for Chief Spetch, who had only been chief in Robbinsdale for just over three months. Three and a half months. I was hired as a sergeant. Uh, three years later, I was a lieutenant when they made a new position. And then three years later, I was chief. I was appointed in November 1st of, for my full time. Before that, I was temporary, you know, while they're going through the hiring process. And then uh, became uh, official chief on November 1st of 1984. The stress of losing one of your own, one of your officers, one of your friends is not only tough on the agency, but it's extremely tough on the other officers' families. Not the day of the killing, but the day after we had all the family members come into the police department and met. We had a a chaplain uh, from North Memorial who was also a firefighter, it's a volunteer fire department. And he's a was a fire department, so he's kind of a grief counselor. And so we had him in with all the family members that wanted to come in, which was basically everyone, of course, to come in and talk about um, how the kids are taking it. Kids that didn't want their dads to go to work. Uh, wives didn't want their dads to go to work. You know, they were afraid, so became difficult. John was a member of the Knights of Columbus, the Suburban Law Enforcement Association, and the Minnesota Police Officers Association. He was survived by his wife, Joan, and his son, Nicholas. Parents, Mr. and Mrs. Leo Scanlon, his brother, Donald, and his sisters, Catherine and Karen. Sadly, John was supposed to be interviewed the next day, the day after he was murdered, for a promotion to sergeant. That night, hours before he was murdered, he rehearsed part of his interview with his wife's uncle. He said John was going to give it his best shot, but he wasn't going to hang his entire future on the promotion. He believed a sergeant's role was to guide, to support, and to defend his team. John saw the promotion as a partnership, which is what he intended to tell the interview panel on Thursday. John had a big smile. He lived life to the fullest, and he was a real sensitive, caring person. He was always the one to comfort people in need. John was a very kind-hearted man who would help anybody with anything. If you called him tomorrow, and and if you called him and said, you know, I need help, we're we're moving, I can't find people, he would have dropped everything and gone to help. Um, That's the kind of person he was. They opened up a apartment building in Robbinsdale with handicapped people, and they were, you know, they were... 17 up to 45 and when they all got in and got settled he went and got them all and walked them uptown Robbinsdale and introduced them to people that they would be doing business with. Those people I got the saddest letters from them. You would not have believed the letters I got from those people. 
they loved him. And he also used to work, not very often, but every once in a while. Well, McDonald's had, had a police officer every Friday night because of the football game. And he used to do that. And of course, the kids, the kids in, in McDonald's were, were devastated that he, he was killed. They, they just couldn't believe it. He was also big into softball. He played on many teams and even had a field named after him. A field he watched get remodeled, but he never got the chance to play on it when it was completed. Oh, he used to watch that field be built. They were, they were, because they used to play, he used to play softball in that field and they were completely remodeling it, putting in bleachers and doing all this stuff. And, and so he used to come home and say, oh, Joan, the, you know, that I saw something new that was done to the, to the, uh, softball field and he said oh it's gonna be so much fun to play on that softball field and you know yada 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 and then he came home one day and said me do you know the electrician's a woman and I said gee I can't imagine such a thing and and um and so uh they they named the field after him after he was killed the high point of his life was the arrival of his adopted son Nicholas who was just over a year old when he was killed John and Joan had waited years to finally adopt a child. We got him in February of that year, 84. So he went through all of his first with him. You know, first Christmas, first birthday, first. He went through all of that with him, which was a blessing. The adoption was final in November, and John was killed in February. And then the night he was killed, Nicholas hadn't been walking. Nicholas was a roller. He never crawled or anything. And one day I said to the doctor, you know, I read these books and they say this baby's supposed to be crawling. That's going to help develop the brain. I said, I think we're raising a moron because all he does is roll. And, and the doctor said, no, throw the book in the garbage. He's going to be fine. Well, then John had said to me, okay, he's not crawling. I mean, he's not, he's not doing anything like that except rolling. You need to take him in. I think there's something wrong with this hip. So I took him into the pediatrician and he said, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with this child's hip. He said, he's just going to get up and walk someday like he'd been doing it for months. Well, the night John was killed, we were out, Nicholas and I were in the bedroom and John was getting ready and I was talking to him and, and um, Nicholas pulled himself up to the bed and walked down the hall like he'd been doing it for years. And so I yelled, John, get out here, the baby's walking. And so he came out and he said to me, okay, don't let him walk anymore. When I get home tomorrow morning, we'll take movies of him walking. And I said, okay, fine. Well, of course, he never got home. Law enforcement is a brotherhood. It becomes your family. And while law enforcement deals with tragedies and people in crisis every day, it's different when it's your coworker, when it's your friend. I think just any time you lose a police officer, it's a tragic event. And when you get a person who is basically executed in a squad car, when a person walks up and shoots you twice, um, it's... Uh, pretty traumatic event for everyone involved. Officer John Scanlon is recognized each year during police week at the state memorial program in St. Paul by the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association. His name is also on the wall in Washington, D.C. John's death, John's execution, 
it likely saved the lives of both Richard Ligda and John's partner, Lowell Hughes. John was a hero, along with everyone else who worked to identify and hunt down John's killer, Ron Schneider. For fallen law enforcement officers surviving families, like the family of John Scanlon, their sacrifice never ends. Joan would be forced to continue on, to continue on without her husband, without her partner, without her best friend. Nicholas would never remember, he would never know his father and how great his father was. John's siblings, John's family, and his friends, everyone would suffer his loss forever. It's important for us as a society to always honor all fallen officers for their service to our communities and to recognize their families for their sacrifice. We need to be there to support these families of the fallen officers, always. We need to make sure they know the appreciation we have for them, that we will always be there for them. In 1993, the state of Minnesota changed sentencing guidelines for cop killers. Convictions from then on were given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Convictions prior to 1993 were sentenced to 30 years to life in prison with eligibility for parole, in some cases well before they served their 30 years. Ron Schneider has had many parole hearings since his conviction, and he has been granted another one in November of 2021. Every time a cop killer gets a parole hearing, the spouse, the family, the agency, and community are re-victimized all over again. To the Scanlon family, Ronald Schneider sentenced them to life. Life without their husband, life without their father, without their friend. They, along with the rest of us in law enforcement, believe that cop killers like Ronald Schneider should have no less of a sentence than he imposed on the Scanlon family in 1985. If you would like to support the Scanlon family and the Robbinsdale Police Department and help keep John's killer behind bars, it only takes a few minutes to send a letter to the state of Minnesota, letting the commissioner and parole board know you believe Schneider should remain in prison. Your letter will only be seen by the commissioner and the parole board, and it will be kept in Schneider's file. They read every letter, and every letter counts. Every letter matters. Every letter helps them understand the impact that was made by the killing of this officer. The process is easy. It's on our website. Just visit our homepage at officerdownmemorialpodcast.com. Scroll down to John's story, then click the icon that says support the Scanlon family. On this page, you'll find instructions explaining how, in just a few easy steps, you can help support this amazing family and keep a cop killer in prison for life where he belongs. Together, we can help ensure that this cop killer continues his life sentence, the life sentence he imposed on the Scanlon family. And together, by sharing this story, we can help ensure that John's service and sacrifice is never forgotten.
Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. A Huda Media Production.